Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my uh, two colleagues and co-hosts, uh, Ryan, Ryan Sweet, uh, he's the Director of Real-Time Economics, and Chris Dorides, the Deputy Chief Economist. Guys, I was just in Washington today. Um, it was pretty quiet, um, surprisingly quiet. You know, walking the streets, it doesn't yeah. feel like it's normal. So, I don't know. Uh, New York feels a lot more like it's back. Uh, DC's got a ways to go. Well, it's a holiday well, weekend. People probably it bailed. Is. Isn't Columbus holiday. Day on Monday? My kids are is off school on Monday. I thought. Oh, it was, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe people took the afternoon off. Is that it's a federal saying? government holiday. Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. today it's yeah. Columbus Day, Monday, Monday. Not today. Oh, Monday. Oh, so but you think people the, are taking four day, four day it's week? It's the start of a long weekend. Yeah. Oh well, there there you go. Uh, well, I was there yesterday in DC, and it was quiet as well. I had the same reaction. So, okay, they're good. So they're I like, think there's something to it. Yeah. yeah. And that voice you heard, uh, listener, is uh, Betsy Stevenson. Betsy, uh, welcome. Um, glad to have you. Um, Great to talk with you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure and honor to have you, uh, Betsy is at the University of Michigan, Michigan now teaching at the uh, at the, the Ford Policy School. How, how long have you been at Michigan, Betsy? Well, I started um, at the University of Michigan in uh, 2012, and I know exactly how long it's huh. been because I was pregnant with my youngest child, and he turns nine on Sunday. So wow. uh, it's been nine years. Wow. Are, are, we will all want to know, especially Ryan, are you a football fan? Are you, you a Mitch football fan? Oh, you, you know, this is like a thing you're not supposed to ask us because like, what really? am I supposed to say here? <laughs> oh. I mean, of yes course, if, if I was going to be a football fan, I would love Michigan. Uh, but uh, I, I, you know, I care a lot about children and their development and their brains. And I find football a little uh, bit hard to watch because I think these are really young people. Um, and I'm not sure I should be watching them smash into each other like that. Yeah, good point. Ryan is a huge uh, everything Boston fan, and apparently Penn State. I didn't know that about him, but a Penn State fan. And I bet you may not know this, but University of Michigan is undefeated, and so is Penn State. And they're going to meet when, Ryan, a couple of weeks from now? Yeah, in a few weeks. A few weeks. Yeah. I did not know that. No, there uh, you go. There you, we you go. Learned my, it here, I, I I'm going to tell you, so my, my partner, Justin, has season tickets. So it's just a very divided household. <laughs> Oh, so he's a big fan, Justin. Yeah, yeah. So he goes to, he's been to every game so far this season. He'd have a rip roaring conversation with you about football right now. And uh, you know what I do during the game? I do something fun with my children because it's not very crowded around Ann Arbor during the game. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. And, and, and Betsy is a, a well known, fantastic economist. You were on the Council of Economic Advisors uh, for a few years, a couple of years under President Obama. Yeah, yeah, so that that was actually an interruption in my University of Michigan time. So I was I came here uh, pregnant, and then with a, a nine month old, headed to D.C. Um, and spent a little more than two years um, on the Council of Economic Advisors, then returned to the University of Michigan. Was it Jason Jason Furman who was? Yeah, chief? Jason. Jason, Jason right. was. Uh, uh, chair. Jason was chair and we started on the same day. In fact, Jason played a big role in recruiting me. I didn't quite realize why he had such a vested interest at the time because he didn't tell me he was going to be named chair. Um, uh, but, <laughs> um, that worked out. Yeah, it was great. I, I really I feel like I learned a lot from him. Um, and he's, uh, he's really, really fantastic. 
Yeah, he's really, really good. And uh, before that, you were, or at least uh, at some point before that, you were also the chief economist at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS. Um, actually, at the Department of Labor. Oh, Department so of Labor. Oh, okay. The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics sits within the, the Department of Labor, although it's quasi-independent. There's only actually one political appointee in all of the uh, BLS, and, and that's the person who's at the head. Um, and even there, it's supposed to be a quasi-political appointee in that they are not supposed to turn over with the presidency. Because um, that's really, you know, we want our data to be government neutral. Sure. Um, we want it to just be the data. Uh, but uh, as chief economist at the Department of Labor, you know, I, I did get to work on on budget issues related to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So I, I felt like that was something I really needed to to think hard about. But um, when I was chief economist at the Department of Labor, you know, the U.S. unemployment rate was quite high. It was, uh, you know, in that that number we thought that it wouldn't hit. Uh, it was still, I think, close to 10 percent when I started. And so I pretty much worked on two things, extending unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we get Congress to do that? And um, can, what kind of jobs packages can we pass that would get people back to work faster? Boy, sounds very familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll come that, back to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And am I wrong? Does the BLS also have a chief economist? It, no, they not? don't. No, they do it. not. Okay. They're really about okay. collecting, you know, collecting data. And it's it's run by just incredible uh, career public servants who, you know, work on designing surveys and collecting data. I mean, a lot of the actual data collection gets farmed out to census, but, you know, BLS owns the data. And, um, you know, the, but I, it's been a very, I think, really important part of the U.S. government to try to keep our statistical agencies, you know, free of any kind of policy analysis. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, uh, we actually have hired a few people from BLS and two of our stars, uh, one is Marissa Di Natale. He's been on the podcast a couple of times on labor market issues. She was BLS and, and Dante, right? Dante D'Antonio, uh, another star. I mean, they're fantastic because uh, well-grounded, uh, very balanced, uh, strong, empirical, economic, uh, in addition to theory. So, you know, fan- fantastic employees. So, uh, we're uh, economists to have. So, yeah, uh, agreed. And Justin, you're, uh, you mentioned Justin, your husband. He's a... a, a, a star economist as well, globally. Um, and I've had him... You may not know this, Betsy, but he spoke at one of my conferences many moons ago. Uh, he uh, spoke, and uh, we, were, we were honored to have him. I do remember him telling me, uh, I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> we were at dinner, and he goes, you know, because uh, I think he, like you, before the podcast listener, uh, Betsy said, I don't do forecasts, or I t- try, try not to do forecasts. And I think Justin has that same perspective, and he said, you know, how can you do these forecasts? I mean, aren't they doing nothing but stories? <laughs> you know, so I, I go, I, I had never thought about it that way. I go, yeah, I guess, yeah, there's, a, there's gotta be a story behind it for sure. <laughs> so I thought that was very funny. He, he was, he was great. Uh, um, but you guys have, uh, are, he's your partner. You guys, cause you have this on your, I was looking at your Wikipedia. You, you actually say your partners for tax reasons. I thought that was oh. interesting. Okay, and in the interview, Justin has said that before, and I mean it's true that 
the way we tax families means that it's tax efficient to not be married. And, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, one of the things the IRS said when um, the Supreme Court case came down and said, you know, uh, gay marriage is legal. People were like, oh, are you going to convert all of these partnerships to marriages? And they were like, no, that could have like really negative tax implications for people. And we're not in the business of, you know, forcing that on anybody. They got to come and reveal themselves as this is their choice. And I thought it was funny that they directly said, like, some people remain unmarried for tax reasons, um, which was actually quite interesting because I I had wondered whether they would consider that, um, you know, a, a reasonable choice or not. But, uh, you know, we it's true. We are not we're not legally married. My, my kids ask about this every once in a while. Like, uh-huh. that's a weird choice. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, well, we've been really busy, <laughs> <laughs> which is true. You guys are so prolific and, uh, you know, do such great work. So it's good. Really good to have you. Thank you. And of course, we're this is Jobs Friday. Uh, so, uh, first Friday, every month, the jobs numbers from the previous month are released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, a lot to talk about. So let's dive right in. And so Ryan, you, you want to play the game? You want to give us a statistic and have us take a crack at trying to figure out what that statistic is. All right. So I'm sure it's jobs related. This is going to be about the jobs number, right? It is. Okay. And I think it's a good segue into the big topic. Which is the job market. <laughs> right. Well, no, I think, you know, okay. good point. <laughs> All right. It, it's five. Just for everybody's edification, and I'm sure, I'm sure you know, but we, we do this, uh, we talk about the economic statistics and we generally play a game to kind of make it easier to digest because it can be a little boring. And then we dive into a big topic and it just so happens today because we have Betsy, who's one of the premier labor economists on the planet, we're going to talk about jobs. So we're going to talk about jobs, jobs, and jobs. So uh, we can't call it that. So what's your statistic? Okay, it's 5.969 million. Five point, let me get this right, 696 million? No, 5.969 million. Oh, five call it 6 million. million. We can round. Does it have anything to do with the, the uh, unemployed, the... Uh, the number of unemployed. Nope. Uh, You're getting no. closer, though. I the the number of jobs we'd have to add to get back to our old uh, employment level. Mm, that may be no. the case, but uh, nope. No, that's not. I think I think it's less than five million now. All right, I'll give revisions. you a big hint because this. Yeah. This is one reason, or this is key to our forecast. Okay. For stronger job growth, is this number? Okay, so. Um, is that the difference between job openings and unemployed? Oh, the number could... of chips we need to get in the country. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's great. Get those. I, I don't want that's you a, guys that... to suffer. No, wait a second. So okay. there's 10.9 million open job positions. So 5.9 minus 10.8 would be 5 million. Oh. That I don't think. Yeah, no, I don't know. No. no. Uh, Okay, fire away. What is it, Ryan? All right, so this is the first thing I went to when the job number came out is the number of people not in the labor force but want a job. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. There's a a litany of reasons why people aren't in the labor force. Uh, You know, child care responsibilities, uh, their own illness. And there was 1.6 million people that were unable to work uh, because of own illness in September, which is most likely COVID-related. 
one point six million people that couldn't work but wanted to, but couldn't work because of their own illness. Couldn't they couldn't work because of their own illness? Yep. Wow, that's a lot of sick people. It's roughly the same as in uh, August. So I mean, with two hundred thousand cases a day and COVID tending to keep people sick for two weeks, I, I guess that number is not that surprising. But when you add it all up like that. That's a lot of people. And, you know, if all those people were in the labor force, we would have had job growth over a million. Exactly. I mean, if all those people had been more able to work. Yeah. That's so, a great number. So just to uh, remind the listener, the, the September employment report includes the week of the 12th. And if you look at the trend in COVID cases, the seven day moving average, that was right around the peak. So that was like oh. things were the worst. Now we're on the other side of it. So I think job growth is really going to pick up over the next few months. Yeah, Ryan, thanks for clarifying. That's why I said 200,000 cases a day, because that's roughly where we were during the reference week. Yep. Maybe I should have started, though, without diving right into the into the game, because people don't have context. Maybe, Ryan, can you just take a couple minutes and just, you know, level set? You know, what did the report say? What, you know, what what were the numbers? Just so people... So overall... That. The employment report was disappointing. We're economists, and you know we, we already like dove right. We were just taking it for granted, but maybe we shouldn't do that. So, so what were the numbers, and you know what was your quick interpretation of the number? So the quick quick interpretation is it's disappointing but misleading. So the economy added uh, two hundred ninety six or two hundred ninety four thousand jobs, 100, or one hundred hundred ninety four thousand in September. That's well below the consensus. It's weaker than what we thought it was going to be. Uh, the unemployment rate fell from uh, fell to four point eight percent. It was north of five percent, uh, but it, that fell because people dropped out of the labor force. So it fell for the wrong reason. So I literally wouldn't interpret too much into that. Uh, job growth, overall job growth, held back by the government. There was uh, over a hundred thousand decline in government employment, and it's really in state and education uh, employment, and that's seasonal adjustment issues. This is usually a big month when a lot of teachers get rehired. Uh, we might have pulled forward a little at hiring in August, uh, but also, you know, there's seasonal adjustment problems that, you know, contribute to that. If you strip out government, private employment was up over 300,000. Uh, that was close, closer to our forecast and still, you know, weaker than the consensus, though. So there was a lot of things to get, you know, I think the knee-jerk reaction was this is a weak report, but the more you dig into it, Delta had his fingerprints all written all over this. Delta's grip on the labor market is going to weaken, so... Uh, I, I agree with Betsy that, you know, the next few months we should see much stronger job growth. So no cause for concern, you know, changes to our forecast because of this are going to be small. doesn't change our Fed forecast. So, you know, overall, you want to get too hung up in one single report, particularly, particularly again, we've talked about this in the past, massive upper revisions to prior months. I think it was almost 170,000 net gain to the prior two months. Right. So September is going to get revised up. It's, gonna, it's not going to so, be this week. Well, so disappointing, I, but but uh, but misleading. Is that your interpretation, Betsy? So I, I wouldn't necessarily call it misleading. I think if you okay. add August and September together, um, and that deals with the teachers pulled forward into August, that deals with the upward revision for August, you would still see that August plus September, even with our revision for August, is below what people's forecast for August plus September was. So there's still some disappointment, but I completely agree that Delta's fingerprints are are all over this. Um, and I, I, you know, I never get in the business of forecasting, but I feel so strongly that the report for October is going to be better. And that's because the reference week is next week. So I know what people are behaving like right now. 
you know, I see around me, I see what my friends are doing. I see what, you know, people are chatting about on social media. And I see where the Delta cases are. The case rate is half what it was during the reference week in September. So I'm not saying it's going to be a stellar report, but it's going to be better. Uh, Do we get revisions up? I mean, there does seem to be this thing uh, with the BLS, which is when we're in a recovery period, they always tend to underestimate on first release. So, it you know, if you wanted to bet the revisions, it should be if that was done. You know, if we got this thing right, you should not you should be able to count on zero as being the revision number. But actually, it's more than 50 percent chance it's an upward revision. And that's just going to be that's going to be true next month as well and the month after that uh, Mm -hmm. because that's just what happens with the bls as we come out of a recession and we've seen a surge in business formations you know the ein numbers the taxpayer identification numbers for new companies has just gone skyward so that's a good sign and it's tough for the bls to pick that up after even after the we'll have to wait for the benchmark revisions you know when they come out to really see the impact of that so i agree with you but to add on to betsy's comment about sorry go ahead Mm -hmm. uh, next week's the reference period, and if you look at go- Google Mobility at uh, workplaces, it's steadily uh, has steadily risen since the uh, uh, the September payroll reference period. So there's signs that people are going back to work. Case counts are lower. Uh, box office sales are rising. People are going through TSA checkpoints more. So you know a lot of the high frequency data that you know we look at a daily and weekly basis are all improving. So you know October is definitely going to be better. Actually, that goes to my my statistic, but I'll come back to that which I'm sure you're going to get right we're, away. We this is, my, is. This, this is my go-to <laughs> statistic. Okay. Hey, hey, Chris, did you heard uh, Ryan and you heard Betsy. Uh, yep. What do you, what do you think? Uh, what, what's your interpretation of the report? So I have a, I, I certainly agree with the uh, assessment uh, regarding, you know, weakness in September, uh, October is going to be much stronger. So no, no dispute there. And I chose the statistic that uh, falls right in line with the, with the discussion here, but so I'll throw it out. It's a uh, seventy-four. Yeah, far away. Seventy-four yep. percent. That the female? Uh, oh wait, no, that can't be the female uh, labor force participation rate. That's the. Oh, that's not the employment so close, to population. Almost. Employment Just a little twist on your. Oh. Nope. Ryan's you, on it. He's got a little on. twist on the demographic. What did he say? Male. Nope. No, it's female. Female. Oh, well, catch me up. What did Ryan say? Oh, a, a female labor force participation. Oh. For 35 to 44 year old oh. uh, women. That's a little esoteric. Well, okay, here's why I chose it's not just, you know, pick one up. That is the prime age demographic that saw the largest decline in labor force participation uh-huh. in the month of September. So that's, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the relevance. And I think it speaks right to the uh, Delta variant again, lack of childcare. I'm experiencing this myself. So <laughs> anecdotal evidence here as well. Um, uh, clearly, there's a, a real struggle there, and that is, uh, in my opinion, holding back women from returning to the labor force. As the Delta variant continues to decline, I am expecting that to, to reverse, and I would support that stronger October number. Okay, yeah. so I, this is going to get straight at my statistic, which was 26,000. No. 26,000. 26,000. 26, uh, is it related to fe- uh, female labor force, something related to women in the workforce? Yep. Okay. Um, and the, it's a negative number, negative oh, 26,000. Oh, I, oh, I know oh, what it is because I, I saw your tweet. I saw your tweet. I saw your tweet. You're on yeah. Twitter? <laughs> I, I actually, I am now engaged on Twitter. 
I am engaged. Sarah's helping me out here, my assistant. But uh, I knew that the problem was that anything I'd have to say, I've already said on Twitter, so you'd be able to catch my my stats. I do have one other number that you might not have. Well, before uh, you go there, I wanted to ask you about that because I saw it and I was a little confused. So you're saying in, uh, female employment in the month of September. So this is so, no, this is non-farm payroll jobs. Oh, non-farm so payroll. Women jobs. had twenty six thousand fewer jobs. <clears throat> in September than they held in August. So that means that 194,000 jobs that were gained, more than 100% of them went to men. Men gained 220,000 non-farm payroll jobs in September over August. And it, if you turn to the employment report, you saw it wasn't that stark, but you still see the same pattern. Um, you know, there was an increase in employment for women is much smaller than the increase in employment for men. And so, you know, the, you know, the negative number tells a darker story, but both reports and both August and September show a decline in job growth for women. Which is consistent Which with is, the Delta impact, the virus yeah. impact. Yeah. And, yeah. And consistent with the point that childcare, uh, yeah. as we go back to school is, you know, causing a little bit of disruption. Did anyone look at employment at daycares? I did. It's ten yeah. percent lower than it yeah. was pre-pandemic. Yeah. It's, yeah. It did increase though in September. Yes, it, up, yeah. it was up seventeen eight. I'm embarrassed to say I did not know that in the non-farm. In the this is in the establishment survey. You can see how many women are employed in the establishment data. Yeah. I, oh my I, god! I, I'm embarrassed for I you. I not know that. <laughs> I mean, I always B5. go five. <laughs> I always go to the household survey. Uh, table B5, employment of women on non-farm payrolls by industry sex sector seasonally adjusted. Um, oh, you got to. I, I missed that. I did. <laughs> geez, I didn't know that. I, 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 I just historically always go to the household survey for that. And that showed an increase. That's why I was confused. Right. And so what you see here is, uh, is that, you know, women lost a lot of non-farm payroll jobs in government. That's not surprising, right? So female employment uh, in government jobs declined by about 90,000 jobs. So the number of jobs from August to September held by women in government went down by 90,000. They saw some growth in leisure and hospitality, but not not anywhere near as much as men did. So they added 7,000 jobs. That's it in leisure mm. and hospitality. So, I, I, I mean, you know, it. you can't take, I'm gonna just repeat what Ryan said. You can't take any one month seriously, you know, and say this is the be all and end all, particularly when you're diving down to how many of these non-farm payroll jobs are held by women in retail trade. But, you know, what we do see is retail trade. That's a great example of employment where all the job, uh, all the jobs that men held prior to the recession are added back. And women are still well below the number of jobs they held in retail trade prior to the pandemic. And it fell again for retail trade um, in uh, between August and. Uh, um, uh, sorry, no, it, it, it didn't fall. I was about to say it fell in all between August and September in retail trade and it didn't. But you're still seeing numbers that are. Uh, um are quite are, have not really recovered. So it it fell a bit in August over July and then rose back up a little bit so that it's sort of back to its uh, its July number. But um, 
yeah, you you can take a look at the jobs held by by women and what we saw, um, you know, in in August was that like more than two thirds of the job gains in non-farm payrolls went to men. And then we see more than 100 percent in September. So those start to paint a picture. And then you turn to the household survey and you see, well, women are getting employment gains in the household survey. So it looks a little bit better but they're not getting gains anywhere near as much as men. So we're still seeing a picture where the, the Delta variant slowed women down more than men. That seems to be pretty clear across, yeah. you know, four different surveys, meaning yeah. two different surveys, two different months. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. The industries that got creamed were leisure, hospitality, retail, healthcare. These are dominated by, by women. And, right. And we saw yeah. healthcare jobs declined in September. Yeah. Big decline. Yeah, very large, large decline. So, a so surprising. I, I, yeah, I'm gonna, I, I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was going to tell you a story that. from from 2010, which was I remember briefing the labor secretary on the data before it got released. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And she said, oh, thank God for health services. That's a recession proof industry. Those jobs never go down. I said, do not say that. No such thing as recession proof industry. But. You know, we just had enormous demand for for health care. And in a normal recession, people don't stop getting medical care as very much. Um, in this recession, I think people they they find medical care when there's a raging pandemic a little scary and people do put it off. Well, there might be some labor supply issues there, too. Right. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, if you listen to any hospital, they're saying, I, I just can't get people. You know, I just can't because they're sick or they're because they're, they're burned sick. Out. Or they Burned they died. Or, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. we did actually lose some healthcare workers during this pandemic. Yeah, we never talk about that, but like we lost some workers, and then we've got people who are burned out who are have decided it's too risky, and people who retired early because they thought it was too risky. I mean, I I've you know got a number of you know letters in the mail from healthcare providers saying at my family's request i have sped up my retirement and you will we will be transitioning your patient file to you know and so yeah. I, I do think it's a you know there are both demand and supply issues going on well there. the other issues if you look at nursing homes and other assisted care that could that that was declining before the pandemic and you know obviously got crushed because of the pandemic and continues to decline i think People are just very nervous about having parents or you know their their grandparents in in that kind of a care environment in this in, in the pandemic. So. I mean, this is why it's so important that you know of of the many there are many things I would like to see uh, get done from a public policy perspective, but increasing funding for home based health care is really going to be important because people are frightened of of nursing based care and. You know, two out of three people who provide care for an adult that needs care are women. And a lot of those women aren't able to work because of the care demands. So we got to figure something out or we are going to find that not all women go back. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot to unpack and we'll come back uh, to many of the things we, we just uh, we're discussing, but should I give you my statistic? I mean, I think you'll probably get it pretty. The, the guys will get it pretty quickly. 94, right. 94.1, 94.1. Chris, you can have this. Go one. ahead, Ryan. No, it's a slam dunk, isn't it? No, uh, too easy. Got your record. Uh, what is it? 
What's up, Chris? R- Ryan's got the record. You know, I want to you know, see right, another Ryan. W for you. Go ahead. No, this one doesn't count because this is like padding. <laughs> well, uh, what is it? Our CNN back to normal index. Wrong. That's dead wrong. Really? That, that, that is what you thought it was. You always go I'm, to the CNN back to normal. I'm, I'm kidding. It is. That's what oh, it yeah, is. All right. <laughs> so, Betsy, it's about to we check our to... website. I was like, did we put the wrong number up there? <laughs> we, we put together this, uh, what we call back to normal index, is a compilation of a lot of government statistics, but a lot of third party data Google Mobility, home base, TSA, check uh, point data. Uh, a lot, uh, just a lot of third-party data. We, we um, uh, use a, a statistical techniques to combine it and come up with an index equal to 100 on February 29th, 2020, so right before the pandemic. And uh, it's daily data. We update it every week. And it turns out to be very – we do it by state, too. So it's quite interesting to see. And it's very sensitive to the pandemic. Uh, we could see when Delta hit, it hit the south hard and fast. And so Florida, which had come all the way back, sunk back into the soup again. But it, it now feels like, and this is the thing that's so encouraging, it's turning. It's turning more positive. You know, we had been uh, down to uh, 91, 92% of normal. Now we're 94%. And all it all feels like we're moving in the right direction. So I, like you guys, I'm going to do, I do forecasts all day long. I'll, I continue to do forecasts. I, I'm forecasting October November, December should be good months. I think we're going to get, you know, something closer to a million as opposed to 500, you know, certainly as compared to 250,000 or 300,000. Well, that the number that, that Ryan started off with, the number of people who are were sick and couldn't work. Yeah. I mean, you Telling. know, if we just have that number, that, you know, makes a huge difference. Yeah. And actually, it's it's interesting because... I, I have one more statistic if you want to hear my statistic. Yeah, far away. Is it, so is 300, it, it's 394,000, but I will tell you right up, it's negative. Negative 394,000. Is it some decline in some uh, part of unemployment? Like yes. long, long, okay. Uh, it, it's, From it's, long it's, term? Long it's employed? A decline in the number of employed of, oh, sorry. Decline in the number of employed of a particular demographic. Uh. Employed, not employed. unemployed. Employed. employed. Oh, 394,000. And this comes from the household survey then. Yeah, from the household survey. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I that, I didn't, I didn't not catch w- that. Women. W- no, no. Women, women were up. No, we, women were up. up. Yeah, they yep. were up. Yeah. I don't know. Was it? Uh, Older. Uh, people with a high school degree only. Oh, oh that's a good one. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah. So what we saw in that household survey was a big decline in the number of people employed w- that have only a high school degree and a decline in the number of people employed who have less than a high school degree. And we saw all the employment gains were among people with a college degree or some college. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, that K-shaped recovery everybody talks about. You really see that in the household survey mm-hmm. um, this month. And I do wonder if some of that was like, those are people who work in-person jobs and if they're sick, they stay home. Um, right. right. So that, uh, you know, and, and yeah, but it, it's, it's really stark. And I, it's actually, if, you know, if that also is reflected in the establishment survey, then it makes you think hard about what those wage gains are really reflecting. 
because if all the job gains went to college graduates, then of course they're, you know, those are going to be higher wage jobs. Oh, you, you mean the mix effects, the impact on the average hourly earnings. Yeah, yeah exactly. Been very yeah. strong. Yeah. Hey, before um, I, I do I have a series of questions I want to ask the group and, and Betsy in particular, but Ryan, going back to that statistic that Betsy mentioned, the 1.6 million sick, uh, give us some context. Uh, was that up from where it was a few months ago? or Yeah, up from a few months ago, but uh-huh. uh, almost identical to what it was in August. Yeah, okay, but it must have been a lot higher 18 yeah. months or 12, yeah, 18 months ago. I don't know the ago. exact number off the top of my head, yeah. but it's higher. So, but, and do you think it was a lot, it was lower before Delta hit? Yeah, actually, if you graph it, yeah. uh, along with uh, daily confirmed cases, like a seven or a monthly average, they track pretty close. Yeah. They're not identical, okay. but they're close. All right. Very curious Ooh, about Ooh, that sounds like that. a very nice graph. I'd love yeah, to see that graph. Yeah, we should take a look at that. I love my chart. Yeah. yeah. Hey, let's, so let's, uh, let's unpack some of this. So, you know, one of the uh, riddles uh, that uh, we've been part of the popular de- discussion and debate around the labor market is, You've got 10.9 million of uh, open positions, record number of open job positions uh, by orders of magnitude. I can't remember, but if you go back pre-pandemic, labor market was pretty tight and I think it was six and a half million, maybe seven million. That was the peak. That was all time high at that point. So that's a lot of open positions. Yet we have still 4.8% unemployment, which is full employment, unemployment. We've got a lot of folks that stepped out of the workforce, not even counted as unemployed. Talked, that was Ryan's statistic early on. So, uh, it, yeah, I'm guessing that there's lots of reasons for this, Betsy, but what would you put at the top of the list or what, what two or three reasons would you put? I, I assume one is just people getting sick. Would that be one or what else, what else is going on here? Well, I think, I mean, yes, there are people who are sick. There are people who are fearful, um, you know, and, I I think that's the thing that gets missed is all those openings reduce the opportunity cost of not working. Because if I in a in a normal economy or even in a weak economy like coming out of the 2008 recession, if I turn down a job offer, I don't know when I'm going to get another one. Mm. And so that means that the opportunity cost of turning that job offer down is quite high. And that reduces the bargaining power of workers. It also pushes people into jobs right away. They think I better take that. Um, All those openings tell people that, you know, if you feel like maybe it's too risky, there are too many people getting sick and you wait two weeks, you're not going to lose much. You're going to be able to get another offer in two weeks. That's an interesting point. If you think that this, this offer you've just gotten is too, you know, too poor, like, you know, ah, 14 bucks an hour. I really want to hold out for 15. You're not really risking not being able to get 14 back, right? You're going to get, you're going to be able to get that $14 offer. If you back, if you turn it down and work, you know, search another week or two. So, and the chances that you get a higher offer are pretty good. So, you know, if you think about the way economists think about where should you set that reservation wage, that wage where you say I should take it, well, you're going to set it much higher when we've got record number of job openings. And that's an interesting point. I, I hadn't even thought of that, but it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's just a big part of what's going on. And what that does is it just slows everything slows it down. down. 
Yeah. Um, because employers get reluctant to make that higher offer. They're not quite sure themselves. And workers are like, no, I'm just going to keep looking. And, you know, the, the good news is that once people settle down, well, actually, people should be in jobs that they're happier to stay in. We should see a decline in separations going forward if that's really what's going on. Um, and so, you know, I'm optimistic that we're going to have a, a rougher road getting to a full recovery. But once we get to a full recovery, people are in jobs that they're going to feel more settled in, that they're not going to be, you know, have their eye as close to the door um, as as maybe in the past. So I think that I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, but I think that's a big part of what's going on. You know, one other theory that was proffered, I haven't heard folks talking about this as much, maybe just because the data doesn't bear it out, is that all of the government support, the particularly the supplemental unemployment insurance that was provided to workers as a reason for workers not going back. I mean, I you know, if you go back a few months ago, that's all I heard, particularly from business people, that that was the reason why people weren't going to work. What do you think of that idea? And any, any evidence bearing on that? Well, I think that it's, you know, what people were saying was, well, if you're gathering unemployment insurance today, you might as well wait um, until you, you know, you can go out there and, uh, uh, and until the unemployment insurance ends, and then you can try to find a job. And I, I just don't think that was what was motivating people as much. I think it, I think that it provided a cushion that allowed people to say, I don't want your job. I'm going to keep looking. I think that that cushion, though, it's it's more about the overall safety net that we provided people during the pandemic. So I think the stimulus did that as well. I think the moratorium on evictions, I think the child tax credit, all of these things, they didn't tell people not to work. They said, if you don't take the first job you're offered, you're not going to starve to death. So you can decide you're going to look a little bit harder. You can go back to school. You can get that credential you want. You can think about moving to a different location where there might be more jobs available. I think it just gave people a little bit more freedom to be able to make better choices and different choices. And I think that that, I think that, again, I think it's all about slowing things down more than Mm -hmm. I think it's about people saying, you know, I'm just going to sit at home and not work. I think, you know, it seems like what people are doing at home is trying to figure out what their next move is and mm-hmm. what they want to do. It's not sitting at home and thinking this is the life I can just pull in the government check and I don't need to work. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing that employers are upset about is all this cushion gave workers a lot of bargaining power. So they look them in the eye and they say, no, I don't want that offer. That's a terrible wage. You, what, you're going to send me my schedule uh, without any input from me three days in advance and, you know, I don't have any control. No, I don't want that kind of job. So, you know, what we're in, you know, with higher wage workers, we're seeing things like you want me back in the office five days a week. No, I'll quit. Thanks. <laughs> um, you know, it's across the spectrum where workers are saying, you know, I, these are the conditions I want. And if I can't get them, I'm just going to look for something else. And it is the bad thing is all those jobs out there or the good thing is all those jobs out there. Give them the freedom to do that. And that plus government support, that means that people don't fear that if they don't, you know, that they're, they're not bringing home a paycheck right this very second, 
that they're going to starve to death. I think that this has given us this big increase in worker bargaining power. And, I, you know, you mentioned like 2019. We spent years saying this labor market's awful tight. When are wages going up? When are workers going to get some bargaining power? And there was no worker bargaining power to be seen. We'd sort of squint at the data and be like, eh, maybe, maybe we're seeing some wage increases somewhere along the distribution. And I started to see some higher wage workers saying things like, you know, I've always wanted to move to Colorado. Can I work remotely? Um, but you're st- what we've seen now is just a massive surge in in sort of workers asserting what they want and then actually acting to try to get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, me, now we do have a data, some data uh, that goes back to the question around UI and its impact on labor markets. Uh, the state level employment data, uh, half the states roughly ended the supplemental UI uh, earlier than uh, than uh, was in, in the legislation. The uh, American Rescue Plan allowed for that supplemental UI to extend through the early September. In some of the southern uh, western states decided, well, this is they, they bought into the idea that this was uh, causing people not to go take those open positions. So therefore, they uh, ended the supplemental UI early. And then half the other states, mostly in the Northeast and the West Coast, uh, kept it to the end of September. And if you look at what happened to jobs in uh, June, July, going into August, there's no discernible difference, at least not, you know, uh, uh, to the to the eye. There's no discernible difference in terms of job growth in the states that ended early and those states that uh, kept it on uh, through the end. So that you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of micro data we're going to have to sift through and there are going to be revisions and we'll see how it all pans out. But at least so far, the data seem to suggest that 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 I that that theory as to why people weren't taking those open positions is a pretty thin one. I don't. Uh, yeah. I mean, that. you know, the thing is, it, it was sad. It was really I just, you know, ending those benefits early was sad. It didn't yeah. it didn't increase employment. And you know, the the critics of the studies that showed that it didn't increase employment have said, well, those are also all the states that had the Delta variant surging. So, you know, it's hard to know. I was like, well, yeah, but that's also why they probably shouldn't have ended unemployment insurance early. Mm. Um, so, you know, it the thing that I think was clear early on in those studies showed is even if there were some people who would have gone back to work earlier if we hadn't had uh, such generous unemployment insurance benefits. This was such a small fraction of the unemployed that most of the good effects would be undone by the decrease in money in the pockets of households without jobs, right? So on the one hand, you incent people back into the labor force. On the other hand, you curtail spending because there's all these houses that lose this income. And then the whole thing sort of comes out in the wash as a big nothing burger, except for it's not a nothing burger. It's a big decline in the well-being of people who don't have jobs. Yeah, right. Um, going going on to uh, wages, you, you, you brought that up going back to the pre-pandemic. As I recall, uh, the uh, wage growth, at least as measured by the Employment Cost Index, the ECI, or even by the Atlanta Wage Tracker, which tracks the same individuals over time based on uh, individual data. So it gets around these mix issues that that we know are 
problem, make the average hourly earnings data, the wage data from the monthly, the, uh, the, the employment report problematic because of the mix effects. Uh, that was pretty strong, you know, pre-pandemic. And we're, we're back, right back to that level right now, pretty close to that, that rate of growth, you know, somewhere around three, three and a half percent, something like that. Does that kind of wage growth, and of course, there's the, the other thing to throw in, into the conversation is that, you know, inflation is on the high side. Right now, consumer price inflation is 5%, lots of reasons for that. But do you, it, it, with that backdrop, are you at all concerned uh, that what's going on in the labor market, the acceleration in wage growth is an inflationary problem? Is it, is it contributing to the inflation we're seeing? Is it, is it a, uh, a problem going forward in terms of undesirably high inflation? Does that worry you at all? Well, I'm guessing that you guys have actually done the calculation so you can say exactly what it's contributing to inflation right now. My understanding is that it's pretty small um, in terms of, you know, its current contribution. You know, I'm more concerned about the decline we've seen in the labor share of income over mm. the last, you know, several decades. And now I was actually just teaching this to my students. And I said, you know, when when I was a youngster, when I was in college, I was told the labor share of income was fixed, fixed over time, fixed over countries. It wasn't going to change. And, you know, in graduate school, that was sort of what I was taught. And then we start looking at the data and we're like, it looks like it's falling. And then it kept falling and kept falling. And now we know the labor share of income has fallen. And that means, you know, just in case not everybody's fully to speed, it means if we took all a GDP and said how much of that goes to the workers and how much of that goes to the owners of capital, the share going to workers has been declining. And and I think that that's a problem for the economy. I, I think we have to solve that problem. So I'm not worried about wage increases. Um, you know, uh, wage increases can contribute to inflation or they could contribute to a rise in the labor share of income. So it depends on whether they're coming out of profits. Um, if you know we have some businesses that are feeling a little bit of the squeeze and some of their excess profits are having to go to labor costs, um, but they don't pass it on to consumers, or whether you know this happens in very low margin industries where they pass the costs on to consumers. And it's also going to depend on whether we see workers getting more productive. So I'm not worried about you know some of the the scare stories are about come, you know, well, here's a fast food restaurant and they've just introduced an AI machine that's going to do order taking at the, you know, at the drive through, you know, and oh, we, we're seeing workers replaced at the fry station with a robot. You know, those things will make all the rest of the workers in the fast food restaurant more productive and justifies higher wages for them. And you know, a lot of those jobs weren't the world's best jobs anyhow. So as long as we you know, sort of keep growing and we keep training workers and we keep finding places for them to be, you know, those kinds of investments, I'm thrilled to see businesses making them because they'll justify higher wages for people. Yeah. I mean, in fact, we're, we're uh, productivity growth has accelerated uh, consistent with the uh, strong wage gains. So the 
unit labor costs, the difference between wage growth and productivity growth, that has not budged. Uh, that has not changed. So businesses are still enjoying these very high margins and raking in a lot of uh, earnings. Co corporate profits are very strong despite the increase in wages. So at least so far, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a script to be written, but at least so far, it doesn't feel like the wage gains are problematic in terms of inflation. I mean, it yeah. seems to me like inflation is pretty obvious. I mean, container uh, ships are, yeah. you know, can the those they're what, like quadruple what they used to be. And uh, the, the cost from Shanghai to New York. Yeah. The container uh, shipping costs are four or five times what they were because of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's going to push some prices up. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that stuff's going to get ironed out. I, I thought the magic that we saw with the pandemic was, I mean, who bought masks in the United States in, you know, February 2020 or January 2020? And now, you know, I can go to the store and pick up a box of 100 masks at just about any store. We're really responsive to changes in demand. Yeah. So, you know, people want masks and hand sanitizer now and we make masks and hand sanitizer or we import masks and hand sanitizer. But we figured out how to to get it uh, to to people. And, you know, I actually just bought a box of masks and I, I like the, um, you know, the N95s uh, because I think they do you know, a better job. Oh, they're hard and to wear, though, aren't they? I, I like yeah. them because they they create that space in your mouth where they're not right yeah. on it. They create the bubble. Right. Um, but, uh, and you know, my, I have an, an unvaxxed nine-year-old, so I'm pretty yeah. paranoid. Um, but I bought a, a big box of those from Costco when they first came out in, um, January, I think. And I paid $99 for it. And I just rebought that box, same box, same manufacturer, same import for $59, and so that price coming down, that's like, okay, yeah, we supply masks now, right? And the supply increased and, uh, you know, so I do think we see like a lot of weird temporary price fluctuations going on that reflect the supply chain problems and our shifts in demand. And uh, I do think people might have permanently changed what they consume going forward. And we're still trying to learn exactly what those permanent changes are. All right. Hey, um I, I, there's a couple more topics I want to hit on, uh, but before I do, let me just turn to Ryan and Chris. Is there anything that that Betsy said that you you take umbrage with that you disagree with or want to push back on? I, 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 it all seems make, it all seems logical, perfectly seems logical, me, very yeah. consistent with yeah <laughs> what we've been saying. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So I like the uh, I like the productivity story. Right, I'm, I'm a big fan right? of that and the better matching. Uh, certainly should contribute to productivity growth along with investment. So I think that all makes sense in terms of uh, wage gains not necessarily being inflationary. So, yeah, no objections uh, on my end. Ryan, I don't know. No, I agree with everything. That everything fits into my, my forecast for inflation coming back down. So well, Betsy, feel, but all of you are so more, easy, right? I mean, look, you, uh, 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 everyone's on board with you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Okay. Let me turn to another uh, topic quickly because I, I know we are uh, uh, taking a lot of your time. Uh, and that is remote work. Um, this feels like uh, it, it, it feels like we're going to get out of this pandemic relatively quick. I mean, the economy is going to recover from this pandemic relatively quickly, at least compared to previous 
recession. So, you know, if everything kind of sticks to script, and I know you don't like to forecast, but if everything <laughs> sticks to my script, you know, we'll be back to full employment. We'll be back to like a mid 3% unemployment rate, you know, another 12, 18 months from now. So full circle round trip, it'll be like a three-year uh, kind of period, you know, early 2020 through early 2023. And that's pretty consistent with the Fed's forecast and the CBO's forecast and every, everybody who does forecasting, that's kind of sort of where they're uh, landing. And that's about half the length of time it take, it's taken on average in other business cycles since World War II. Obviously, the one after the financial crisis, that took us nine years or 10 years to you know, you know, get it all back. So we're going to get back pretty quickly, but there is going to be some long-term consequences of the pandemic. And the, and the one that I think might be, at least from my perspective, uh, a real game changer in lots of different ways is remote work. But I'm really curious, you know, how you're thinking about that, whether you think it's here to stay uh, and how that's going to evolve and what the, what the implications might be. So are you, what, what do you think of that? Is, is remote work here to stay? Remote work is here to stay. Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, certain, you know, people really want it. Um, that's a forecast, the- by the way, Betsy. Yeah. That is a forecast, and that that was a forecast <laughs> with no uncertainty. Uh, uh, you know, that yeah, was like interval. a well, yeah, no question, uh, no interval there. Yeah, but that's because zero remote work is is a ter- <laughs> you know is a ridiculous number. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be 36 percent remote work or 52% remote work, but I'm going to tell you, Ryan will though. Ryan will tell you that. In fact, I'm going to ask him that in a second. So go ahead. Um, the, uh, you know, what you see is people want it. And even most employers think the idea of expecting people to come into the office five days a week, um, is just not really going to work. I think what we've learned is that there are definitely some benefits to FaceTime. So people want to see people in the office, but there's also some productivity gains that come from people having some quiet time at home and avoiding the commute. You know, I've been championing work, championing workplace flexibility and the ability to do remote work for a long time. And the argument always was every employer who tried it out found that, you know, people, they save a lot of time not commuting and they give some of that time back to their boss, to their job. You know, they spend, if they would have spent an hour commuting, maybe they spend an extra 40 minutes on themselves, but they spend an extra 20 minutes working. And that's where you can get, you know, easily get productivity gains because you don't think of them as hours worked. You think of them as a job. So um, I, I, but now speaking of productivity gains, remote meetings being able to do things without getting on an airplane, I mean, that's huge. And I think companies right. are really going to have to think a lot harder about what requires a face-to-face meeting. Because, you know, even right, right now we're recording. And if even if I'd gone across town to a different studio, that would have meant that this would have taken an extra hour of my time. Um, and that would mean I would do fewer things like this. Um, I you know, I have a principles of economics textbook and I really like to be able to connect with instructors who are either using my book or interested in using it and just, you know, see how things are going with them. I used to fly out to universities and, you know, give talks uh, about economics teaching uh, to instructors and watch them teach. And I don't, I, I can now join their class and be a you know guest lecturer for 10 minutes. And it right. it takes me, you know, 20 minutes of log in, do the little guest thing and leave. Or um, so these things I can do a lot more of them. And I can't imagine 
why I, I would want to go back to so many things, you know, in uh, in person. And even at the, you know, at the university, they said to us this year when it came to academic seminars, well, why do you need such a big budget for so many airplane trips when we can have you do like right. half of them in person and half remote? And some people who would never come in person are happy to come remote. So it actually ends up being a win-win. You know, you get a greater diversity of, of academic speakers coming through and the university doesn't spend as much, Yeah, at least on that. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, Ryan, do you know offhand from the BLS report, today's report, what percent of folks are working remotely because ooh, ooh, of I do, the pandemic? I do. You do? You know that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Ryan, do you? Yeah, but you go ahead. Well, I, I, I might be wrong, but my memory was it was 13%, which was smaller than I thought. What, it would what be. is it, Ryan? 13 oh? <laughs> oh, It's like 13.1. Oh. Yeah, no. <laughs> She's on it. She got it. That is so rude, Ryan. Yeah, like, oh, Pets, you don't know it's 13.1. No, okay. because when the podcast is over, Mark will call me and be like, it was 13.1. Why didn't you know, we, go out, we go out? We have multiple that's decimal true. points here. Well, well uh, I think it's low because that's affected by the pandemic, right? Correct. I mean, they're correct. saying I'm working at home because I can't work wherever because of the pandemic. So that's why that's come in. But that doesn't mean that's not a, there's a the number that are actually working remotely are a lot large. Like I, I don't need to work at home. I could be in the office and I'm not working. I'm working at home, but not because of the pandemic. Right. So I'm not counted. In that. I wouldn't be counted in that statistic. Oh, that's that a right, great Ryan? point. Yeah. I wouldn't be counted in it either. Yeah, that's right. Hey, one thing about this remote work, I'm really curious how you're thinking about this. So remote work, would remote work, how's that going to affect wages? It's like, okay, I'm a Moody's employee. I work in New York. Moody says you can work wherever you want. And I say, okay, I'm going to go work in uh, Tampa, Florida. Wages in Tampa are a lot lower than in New York. Moody says, oh, and, and by the way, this isn't what Moody's is saying. I'm just picking on Moody's. Uh, uh, we can talk about Moody's policies, but let's pick somebody else. Uh, Goldman Sachs says, okay, you go to, you go to Tampa but your wages have to now be more consistent with Tampa wages. Uh, well, what if then JP Morgan swoops in and says, we'll pay you a little bit more. We don't okay. care you're living in Tampa. Okay. So, so you I think mean, that's think, what's going to happen? So, so here's the thing. If you got, you got labor demand and you got labor supply. So I think that it's, you're not going to be able to pay people like, oh, wages are lower in Tampa. So I'm going to pay you less because you're in Tampa. I just don't I don't see how that sticks because it's, you could get an offer from market, somebody right? else. But what will happen is there's a bunch of people who are like, there's no way I'm working in New York City. <laughs> I am not moving to that city. And Goldman couldn't hire them. But now they can because they're willing to hire people living in Tampa or they're willing to you know, hire people living in you know, Nebraska. And that means that they have a greater a number of people that they can select from. That will push wages down. That will even push wages potentially down for people in New York, um, right? Because overall, the, the supply of people who they, you know, the labor supply of potential workers for Goldman Sachs just went way up. And what that will do is, you know, push wages down. What's likely to happen, though, is, you know, it's going to be a tool that some employers might use to pay people a little bit more 
you know, you want to pay people what you think that individual person is worth in terms of what they produce. I want to be really careful here because I, I never think somebody's salary is what their worth is. But, yeah, exactly. you, you know, you want to be able to pay somebody based on, you know, what kind of value you think they're bringing to the firm. But you can cause a lot of animosity and reduce overall productivity if you're paying people a bunch of differentiated amounts. So I can imagine a lot of companies trying to lean on the like, well, I'm really paying you less because you live in Tampa, not because, you know, Mark, you're just less productive than Ryan. Right. You know, that. Uh, but at the end of the day, if, you know, you're you're worth the wages you were getting paid in New York, then you'll have a bunch of other competing offers that will bid those wages right back up to what you were earning in New York. Yeah, I think a lot depends on the occupation, right? If you're, you're in an occupation that you're in a, a, a national market or a global market, then you're right. I mean, it doesn't matter. You're you're going to get bid. Your wages are going to get bid right back up. JP Morgan's going to come and say, I'm going to pay you more. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't I do that? But if you're in an occupation where, you know, the labor supply is more of a local supply, you know, that may be, you know, folks that work in back office operations, for example. You know, yeah, but that's you know. that's the whole point of remote work is that this is what's happened is it has changed who you can hire all around the country. So it's in world, it's helped people really. in, you know, in weaker labor markets. Now they can reach out to stronger labor markets and say, hello, I'm available. I can do it just remotely. And I think that one of the things, I mean, this is part of this sort of grand reallocation is, you know, will we see employers who can have people work remotely, hire people who live in areas they've never had them work before? And what I saw prior to the pandemic was a lot of companies that would bring people in, get to know them. You'd get some work experience. Maybe you worked there one year, two years, five years, and then they were willing to let you move somewhere else. Right. Like um, my publisher, one of my development editors lives in North Carolina, not New York, but she worked in that New York office for a number of years. They all know her really well. And now they let her live in a place where she can afford to buy a house, North Carolina. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's funny because I was talking to her. She was interviewing someone they were the publisher was hiring and she's like, yeah, they better live in New York. <laughs> hmm. So there's still a view that like mm -hmm. new employees need to start in the home office. Um, but I, I think that there's going to be some willingness to hire people with a plan to have them work remote. And I think that will change the labor supply, particularly in labor markets that were very tight prior to the pandemic. And it will help people get jobs who live in labor markets that were quite weak prior to the pandemic. Mm. Okay. One, one set, one other set of questions or one question, because I, we are running out of time. Um, the, the president, President Biden, has put forward a, a very ambitious agenda, legislative agenda around various uh, social programs, uh, housing, health care, education, child care, elder care, climate risk mitigation. Uh, that's in addition to the public infrastructure plan that's uh, in, uh, working through Congress as well. One, the administration argues uh, that the, the plan will help long-term growth in different ways and improve labor productivity, but also labor force participation. Do you buy into that? And of all of the different elements of the agenda, the Build Back Better agenda, which one or two of those things do you think is going to be most impactful in, in terms of in, uh, affecting long-term labor force participation um, or growth? So I absolutely believe in that. And, I, you know, 
I, I did this little experiment with my students the other day, which is I showed them how much higher incomes would be if we could have maintained the total factor productivity growth we saw in the 50s and 60s through, you know, to today. And I think they were shocked because they think that everything's driven by changes in inequality. Um, but it, what were we doing in the 50s and 60s? Well, we had the most educated population in the world. And we've really fallen behind on that. So what have other countries done? They've invested more in early childhood education, which gives kids a really good start, a foundation for building more knowledge and becoming more productive as workers. And they've also invested more in making it affordable for them to go to college and complete college. So we start kids in college at similar rates to other developed countries, but we don't graduate them. And one of the reasons we don't graduate them is the financial pressures. So from investing in early childhood education to college, I think all of that is absolutely critical to returning us to being more competitive with other countries and in terms of the productivity of our workforce. Um, I think you know, you, you can only grow so much by raising labor force participation because you grow as the labor force participation rises and then, you know, it can't yeah. go past 100 percent. So um, but, you know, what we again, I think the key is to not think just about how much labor force participation rises, but how much you build a more productive workforce by helping foster continuous work experience. So if we, you know, keep women in the labor force and, you know, through the time period which they're having children and we keep them connected to the labor force and they stay in the labor force, it's not just we'll have higher labor force participation, but we actually have high, more continuous labor force experience that leads to more productive workers. And, you know, another big problem we have is male labor force participation. And there, I think, you know, it really is things like the early childhood education and um, and investing in college that are part of the key drivers there. So I think there's a lot in this package that is about, you know, boosting, you know, our long term productivity. You know, asking me to choose is kind of tough because the problem is and I think this is how the president, and the administration sees it is what would it mean to try to invest in more productive workers today who are, say, two or three or four years old, when by the time they're old enough to reap the returns on that productivity, we've had enormous destruction due to climate change? Um, so why, you know, we pick investing in children, but we don't give them a planet in which they can be productive in in 30 or 40 years. So you can't pick children over climate, but if you pick climate, well, we're not investing in the people that can be productive in the planet that we're saving. And one of the things that I think the United States has been doing to its detriment over the last, I don't want to say 20 or 30 years, maybe even longer, is we've been consuming the investments in infrastructure that previous generations made. And consuming it means that there's less there. And we need to be adding to that infrastructure investment so that, you know, we have the modern, uh, you know, in internet, we have the modern roads, we have modern bridges. We can't put 
self-driving cars on the roads because we don't have roads that could have self-driving cars on them right now. So how can we take advantage of technology that's developing like self-driving cars if we're not investing in the infrastructure? So I think it's it's really about how do we build a country that can be more successful economically as well as fairer, but more successful economically in the long run, you know, in 30 or 40 or 50 years. And the thing that really worries me is Congress keeps making decisions based on these narrow 10-year budget windows. And what those 10-year budget windows have done is led us to make decisions that are bad for our children's future and are really focused on, you know, a very short-sighted near term. Yeah. And the president's trying to break out of that, right? Because he's saying, hey, look, if you look out 15 years, my I pay for all this stuff. Yes. So so he's trying desperately to do that, which is exactly right. Well, thank you so much. I, I do want to uh, let everyone know that your podcast with, with Justin, Think Like an Economist, is, is just fabulous. It's fantastic. Really enjoy it. You guys... Uh, listener, they put us to shame. I mean, she's got, you can't, well, if you go up on YouTube, you'll see this. <laughs> she's got, I thought I had the high tech microphone. She's like uh, blown us away with her, uh, her room there in the, in the, uh, in the microphones, but uh, you, you guys have a great podcast and I want to thank you for coming on. I, I do want, I want to advertise though, that I have really engaged on Twitter and now I, I, I I'm Mark Zandy, you know, on Twitter. So I'm doing this. I'm in. I'm engaged. So please uh, uh, feel free to follow and uh, go to economy.com, Inside Economics. Tell us what you want us to chat about, and uh, we'll certainly work on that for you. So with that, we're going to call it a podcast. Take care now. Mm-hmm.